Please stand for the reading of God's word. It's going to be three separate passages. Two from Paul, one from Matthew, starting in Matthew verse. This is Jesus speaking. And when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Chapter Romans 8 from the pen of the apostle Paul. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And finally, again, Paul's letter to the Galatians. But when the fullest of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Amen. Please be seated. Religion is a crutch. God is simply an idea, a wish people make up to explain the world so it will make sense when it doesn't in fact make sense. That's not my idea, obviously, but that is the idea of some like Sigmund Freud in, in works like The Future of an Illusion or Moses' Monotheism where he talks about God as this uh, old bearded man in the sky. And that's actually an image that we get from the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with that book. Uh, but that, father, that, that old bearded man in the sky is just someone we've made up. A father figure, yes. One who is powerful, yes, and can do what he wants. And because someone is in charge, we know that makes sense of the world. Someone who will take care of us, even if we don't understand what is always going on. But what Freud and others would say is we're just... Really, out of anxiety, out of uh, fear, and out of need, we're just projecting up to try and impose some kind of order. Similarly, similar line of thinking um, from an, an, another philosopher. I won't burden you with these names, but you know, he would say, look, God the Father is someone that we identify with who gives comfort to us because not only does he take care of us, but he will unload on our enemies. He will punish those who make our life difficult and challenging. He will set to rights what has been wronged in our life. He's powerful and someone to whom we can appeal to threaten others, maybe even coerce, leverage others, control them for our purposes. And if you follow any of the, the fad of, uh, and I don't mean fad dismissively, I just mean that it's fairly prominent right now, this idea of deconstruction in the church, uh, particularly if you go on TikTok, there's a whole thing on TikTok about why people have left the church. One of the reasons they give, not the only, but one of the reasons they will give is that it just feels like Christians have this 
idea of God, someone who will leverage their resentments against others. And speaking of threatening and controlling others with religion, what about this whole business of calling God Father anyway? It can seem like, can't it, one more way that men in particular have gained the system. If God is a dude, then dudes are more similar to God, and dudes get to set the agenda, religion, the world, everything else, and so on. Now, look, you don't have to read the same dorky things I read in both philosophy and psychology to know that the criticisms that I have described here have some traction in our world and our culture and honestly probably in your own hearts and heads if we're a little bit honest or even a lot honest and that's okay. And so from things like uh, the movie Toy Story to the documentary God Forbid which just came out on Hulu, what we are hearing is that the world is not enchanted morally or otherwise. Power is what religion is really about. And fathers, especially a heavenly father, uh, is not there or at least cannot be trusted as we've seen what children have, do, have done in the father's name. So what are we to make as those who have gathered this morning to confess, as we will do a little bit later, that God is father? What are we to make of calling God father both in scripture and in the creed? And when we confess that we believe God is the Father, what do we mean? And what difference does it make? And so I just want to highlight two things. There's whole books written on this, but I just want us to reflect on two things based on these passages that we've looked at this morning. And the first is this, that we believe God as Father. When we say God as Father, we mean that God is personal and parental in his care and reliable in his actions in the world. That's the first thing. And the second is when we confess that God is Father, we believe that God the Father gives us what Jesus has in relation to God. And what Jesus has in relation to God, in a very Jesus kind of way, is privilege of access to God and a kind of power of service and witness. So that's where we're going to go this morning. So let's talk about that first thing. God the Father is personal, and maybe I can put it like this, and also a stable parent. Now, when the first Christians started sorting out what it means that God is Father, they understood Jesus to mean, and let me say this right now, Jesus is our chief source for understanding God as Father. But they understood Jesus to mean that God, the God he confessed, the God he called his Father, is not like the other gods, who were competing for your allegiance. In the first century, there were a lot of gods that were competing for the allegiance of the people. The Romans had plenty of gods, in fact, who were fathers too. So this isn't something novel that comes from Christianity. You had Jupiter, you had Neptune, you had Apollo. All right? And those gods were passionate. They were lusty. They were unpredictable. They would come to earth. They would become human. Take wives who gave them children and all the drama that came with it. And they would do things like get angry. They would change their mind about things. They would turn against people that they said they were friends with. And these gods didn't really seem to be anything but magnified versions of people in all of their mood swings and indecisiveness, right? So it's getting back to the Freud stuff that we mentioned earlier. But the early Christians 
wanted to say something different because they experienced something different. The early Christians wanted to be clear that when we said father, we weren't projecting up about God, some nitty gritty soap opera wish about what we wanted to be so, even though we knew it wasn't so. But instead, when we were talking about God, we were saying what we were hearing, what had already been revealed from Jesus and the prophets on. Something like this, a theologian that I like, Karl Barth, says that true and proper fatherhood resides in God. And from this fatherhood of God, what we know as fatherhood among us men is derived. The divine fatherhood is the primal source of all natural fatherhood. In other words, hear me on this, because maybe for some of y'all this morning, because of your own experience with father, this might be the most important thing you hear. We don't look at fathers to figure out what God is like as a father. We look at God as he has been revealed through Jesus in scripture, in the prophets, and the rest of script, uh, of the testimony of, the, of uh, everyone else who's written the Bible. We look at God to understand what parents are and what they should be. It's not a projecting up, it's a receiving down. And honestly, I, and I won't go into a bunch of this, but I think if you just started with that, that would be an antidote or at least a corrective to what I see as this cottage industry of trying to recapture manhood on the part of so many Christians. And there's just so much bad teaching that comes about, oh, we need to, there's this lost generation of boys and men recognizing a real problem, but often the solutions are just um, kind of sanctified and sprinkled uh Vikingism or something else. It doesn't sound like it comes from Christianity. That's another sermon for another time. But as Christians, early Christians were thinking about God, this is also God as Father. This is also why they were careful to point out that while pagan gods, and I don't mean pagan pejoratively, I just mean that's that's what how they would describe themselves. Pagan gods of the first century were male, female. The true God transcends gender and body. Don't put words in my mouth. Just listen to what I'm saying here. But this is important because this is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go deep here. Um, it's, it might seem a little bit inside baseball for Christians, but sometimes you do that. Athanasius, all right? We're about to get into the Christmas season. That's someone that if you don't hear or talk about Athanasius, you at least do around Christmas because he wrote this wonderful account of Jesus coming in the flesh called on the incarnation. He cares about bodily existence, but when he's talking about God, the father, this is what he said. The true God by nature is without body. He is invisible, untouchable. All right. So he transcends that stuff. Gregory of Nazianzus, another guy, he is, he's one of the early church fathers who has helped our understanding of what we confess when we confess the creed, especially as it comes to the Trinity. Okay. So not soft, not woke or whatever, but this is what he said. The word father is used without a bodily idea and thinking of God as a male uh, would lead us back to paganism. Instead, the father, when we talk about father, that designates the relationship that the father, God, the father is the source, the origin of divine life. The son is derived from the source, not created. All right. There's your inside baseball stuff. But it's important to see what they're highlighting, that God is above 
the, the bodily stuff as the father. Okay, y'all hung with me. It looks like so far, and maybe you're having a question to yourself. Okay, you said that God's different than the other gods, but what about the God in the Hebrew Bible? Right? There's often this juxtaposition. We'll put Jesus in contrast to the God of the Hebrew Bible. Of the Old Testament, however you describe it. That God seems to sometimes, well, fly off the handle a little bit. Right? We get the word smite, that good Old Testament word, because God is smiting people, smacking them, crushing them, bringing down his wrath, his fury, his uh, hellfire and brimstone, and sometimes even his own people. And Jesus says we should trust him, that he's reliable, that he's not kind of flaky. Is he reliable? Is he stable? Let's just go to one passage, right? You could maybe do a whole series on this. Uh, Exodus 32, I should have had put that in your order of worship, but I can give you a summary. Exodus 32 is the passage where with the golden calf, right? Even if you've not read that, you've probably seen the movie that comes out of Easter with the Israelites and all that stuff. All right, so what's happening in Exodus 32? Moses goes up on the mountain to have a talk with God, to have this uh, conversation, this engagement with the Lord. Would have been amazing, but he's taking a long time coming down with a word from God back to the people. And so the people who, by the way, had just been freed from slavery in Egypt, they decide, well, we need something to kind of fill this gap, this silence that we have from Moses. So they make a golden calf. Now they call the golden calf Yahweh. They're intending that this is God, this representation. And so they literally take stuff that they were wearing, the stuff that they had, maybe they were drinking out of, and they make a calf and they make, uh, and they decide to worship this, uh, as God. Uh, they believe that there, here's God dwelling among us in, in, in this golden calf. Well, you know how the rest of the story goes. The Lord gets angry and it even seems like at some point there's like this riot that happens and 3,000 people are eventually smoked. They're struck down and it just seems like things are about to go off the, the rails. Israel's, you know, they've been delivered and now they're about to be done for. And it seems like Moses has to be the rational one in this conversation that he has to talk God off of a ledge from scrapping this whole project and starting over. And so as you read that, so you might think, well, this sounds like Zeus. This sounds like Jupiter more than it sounds like the father that Jesus is talking about. Or is it? Because you see, Moses understood the difference between a God who could do whatever he liked, damn the consequences, And the God who had shown himself to them as a God of commitment and forgiveness, ready to be argued with, ready to be recalled to his true nature by those who really understand him. And like a good parent, that is what God is doing in this passage in in Exodus 32. God is actually coaxing Moses to remember I am who I am. I promise to be God and I will be God. Now, Moses, this is the subtext. Will you trust me to be like that? Are you going to appeal to me to be a God like they think I'm a God, like this golden calf? And so this story invites us into the scene that we we've been thinking about. What would you do if you were God? That's a silly question, obviously, because we can't even imagine what that would be like. But 
as you think about everything you'd done that God had done for the people, what would you do after they made this calf? In the midst of this disastrous stupidity of the people in the desert, you'd be attempted to annihilate them, to wipe them out, to smite them. But see, that's the difference between God and us. The difference between God and the false gods. Moses remembers the good news of God's promise and speaks it back to God. Isn't that what prayer is? Us reminding, us engaging God based on who he has told us he already is. So let me ask you this as we're thinking about God's father. Do you pray like that? Or is your prayer life maybe a little bit, I don't know, boring? A friend of mine, a pastor in Houston, I've maybe told you this story before. Um, I probably used his name. I won't do it this time, but he was calling his assistant. He was senior pastor of a big church in Houston. He was calling his assistant and he left a message on her phone. He's like, Adrian, I need you to make sure that this meeting is set up. I need you to make sure so-and-so shows up. I need to uh, get, have, make sure you have this book. And he was just kind of giving this laundry list. And then at the very end, he said, amen. Now, why did he do that? Because he was caught in a cadence of just listing out stuff over and over again. That was kind of like how he prayed. And I wonder, I know this is the case for me. I'm not, I'm not throwing him under the, the bus because that's, that I do the same thing. But I wonder if we leave space in prayer to have the answered prayer be the answer. Do we ask questions of God? Do we respectfully, humbly as children, ask God, hold God to account. When we just prayed earlier, hey, we want more people to be involved in hope. It's a a, a fitting and legitimate prayer to say, Lord, this is a scandal. We are a great community, but we want to see more people come to Christ. What are they going to say about you, Lord? Fully in line with what God calls us to and expects based on the promises of the gospel and the promises of who God is. That kind of should give some flavor, some uh, some agency, some salt even to our prayers as we engage God. What we see in Jesus, what we see in Moses, hopefully what we're seeing in your life is that the father of Jesus shows us the unlimited power to be there for us, to be faithful for a world that in fact is deeply unstable, unjust, and suspicious, uncooperative. That the Father has this power to go on trying to keep trying to get through to us at any and all cost, laboring with and wrestling with his children. Not in an antagonistic way, but in a way of drawing us out to him. Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, says this. This is why trust in God the Father is so different from wish fulfillment and projection about some all-powerful character who can just do what he decides and get what he wants straight away. It is the discovery of Moses that God is a God who never runs out of love and liberty. So God is to be trusted as we would trust a loving parent whose commitment to us is inexhaustible, whose purposes for us are unfailingly generous, someone whose life And it's true is the source of our life and who guarantees that there is always a home for us. That's who God is. That is what engaging God in prayer is like. And that's the first thing that we're looking at. Second is this. Jesus relates to God as his own father 
and invites his own followers to share in that same relationship, right? He calls God my father. And then he in turn says to his disciples, he calls him your father, John chapter 20. And as we saw in the Lord's prayer, our father. You see, Jesus' relationship to God is unique, but it is also inclusive. His followers stand on the inside of Jesus' unique relationship to God. He calls God Abba, Father, Papa. And now you and I, by faith, are empowered by the Holy Spirit to pray the same way. And notice we're not praying to the universe or some uh, impersonal force, some power, but we are in a relationship of personality, access, and yes, privilege when it comes to the Father and affection in our prayer to him. It's like this in um, 1960, John F. Kennedy was elected president of the United States and people, a slim majority by which he won, but people generally were fairly excited uh, for a host of reasons that didn't have anything to do with policies. Here was this guy. Um, he was young, seemingly energetic, vital, good-looking, beautiful wife. And then he's going into the White House uh, with these little children as well. And so there was a spread in Life magazine that had these photos right after he had been elected and after he was in office for a little while that showed the new, young, vital uh, cool, hip president in the office, and there was JFK speaking on the phone. There he was making decisions, you know, uh, surrounded by other dour looking serious people. There was the Secret Service arm standing ready to protect him. But then there was John John, John F. K. Jr., and he was just this little dude, and he didn't know. Uh, his dad, simply his president, the most powerful person in the world, that was dad. And so John they had these series of pictures, John, John, just kind of strolling through the Secret Service and the Secretary of Defense and all these people. And then he was starting to play and engage him. And pretty soon he actually coaxed the president of the United States to get on the ground and start playing with him as father. That might seem a little bit cheeky or whatever, but that's a sense in which the we are able to engage God as well. Yes, he is the, the ruler of all things, the creator of all things, but our access is like uh, John John to his dad. We can stroll past all the pretense, the pomp, and just engage him as a father. We speak to God and God listens to us as if we were Jesus. Full stop, no qualification. Jesus is God's child by nature. We become God's children by grace. Jesus is born of God and we are adopted. So when we confess that God is father, it's not just some theological idea, but it's a confession of the most defining relationship of our lives. We call God father, Abba, because that is what Jesus calls God. And because Jesus has invited us to relate to him in the same way. We cry out to God in a position of confidence, of trust, like Jesus, where we know who God is and are continuing to grow in that. But we do know him as faithful, as trustworthy, as personal, as merciful and patient, able and willing to move the levers of power in the world through our prayers. Not just to get what we want, but to get what he wants as he brings us more and more into line with who he is. The desire for mercy, 
and Holy Ghost power. That's what shapes our prayer. And like Jesus and unlike the world, we call out to God not to curse those who are enemies, but instead to pray for them. To pray for God's kindness, his patience, his mercy, his fatherhood to extend to them too. What did Jesus say from the cross? Can't wait till this is over because I'm going to go to town on you with hell, fire, and brimstone. Did not. Would have been what I was thinking. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Seemed like they did know what they were doing. Patient, forbearing. See, in a time and place when so many in our culture see Christians as full of resentment, using religion as a lead pipe to hit uh, and shame others into conformity with beliefs that they just don't hold. We actually have the privilege not to coerce people, but to persuade them in prayer and in witness because of our access to God. So here's an easy application. Would you pray knowing who you are in relation to God? Would you commit to praying for the, for folks who maybe think of you or think of other Christians as enemies or outsiders or malcontents? Hopefully you don't think of anyone as enemies, right? Where we try not to. Who, who is that for you? You fill in the blank. I won't even begin to fill the blank for you. But to confess God as father, and we'll end with this, puts us in the place of being children. And we never, and this is the good news, we never grow out of being God's children. We never get beyond that. And his presence to us and our presence to him is as close as it was to Jesus. And the privilege to call God, God for the sake of the world with mercy is offered through the son by the father and shared in us. Let's pray that now. Lord, we are wanting and asking that we would, even as we have crunched through beginning to end various portions of Scripture here, we're not trying to master Scripture so that we can move on to bigger and better things. We want to believe and experience you as our Father because that's how you have revealed yourself, especially in Jesus. And because Jesus has given us so much, we want as much as possible in this life, to have our lives squeezed into his, but not in a way that erases us, but it makes us more who we're supposed to be as your children. So help us to be prayerful, bold even in our prayers to you, Father. Not with any sense of entitlement, but with a real sense that we have been gifted this privilege to pray, to enjoy you, to enjoy one another as children of the living God. Help us to do this, we pray, even as we have heard you in the reading of Scripture and are about to receive your gifts in the Lord's Supper. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.